we sold it at the right time for a significant amount of money that others would not have paid at the time. So we de-risked our total like life scenario to have more liquid assets than non-liquid assets. I regret not being more involved in something ahead of time to fill that gap. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Pancake, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to my good friend, David Hauser. David is an entrepreneur who created grasshopper.com. He ended up selling it for $200 million. It was totally bootstrapped, and there was only two partners. So if you do the math, you know what that means? Yes, David is stinking rich, like crazy rich. And this is an episode talking about what's it like to be so rich? I wanted to understand if you have $100 million, what are the good things and the bad? And I want to share it with you today. So in this conversation, you'll learn three major things. So number one, you'll actually be shocked about how frugal David is. It's shocking. Uh, number two, why real estate is overrated to get rich and why David doesn't even do it anymore. And number three, for yourself, what are quick ways or slow ways to generate wealth? You're going to learn those three things and a bunch of surprises along the way. Enjoy. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to highlight that this month is going to be Money Month or Personal Finance Month. I wanted to highlight a book that I've actually put together. So in the past few years, I've made a little bit of money. And I was always wondering, what are super rich people doing that regular people like myself don't really know about? And so I went and interviewed rich friends of mine, wealth managers, and tax strategists to find out what are super rich people doing in general that regular people like myself don't really know about. So I created a book called Things That Rich People Don't Tell You. Uh, and so it's a book for people who make over $100,000. And it's just a small experiment I'm doing. Uh, I put a lot into it. I'm only going to sell 100 books. It's $100, so it's not cheap. It's for people who actually make money. And the book is only physical. So if you're interested in a copy, email me at richpeople at okdork.com with the subject line, I want it. That's richpeople at okdork.com with the subject line, I want it. The only straight no I got so far was Mark Cuban. How so? He's like, I do it, but I have to read the book and I don't have time to read the book. But he said that to you? Yeah. How'd you get a hold of him? He invested in Chargeify, so I just emailed him. We never spoke to him on the phone at any point. Okay. And he invested in like probably three emails. How much did you put in? A half million. So each email is like $130,000. Yeah. <laughs> I was CC'd on them. He asked some questions about marketplace. He asked about how mobile was growing. He asked, you know, whatever. He didn't ask any questions about team. His decision process was not complex. I think he liked the market. I think that's what it came down to. This parlays into the overall topic today is being rich, which is why I want to talk <laughs> to you about it. I want to record and share it with my audience. And that Mark is so rich, and hopefully he stays rich. Well, he's so rich that like these are meaningless things, right? Half a million dollars is meaningless when you have billions, right? Why even spend the time doing it, you think? I think that's a good question. I think there's one, just an interest level. Being engaged and interested in new things, it's like buying access to that, right? Two, I think there is this idea that you can continue to make money that way. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea to make private investments in things that you can't influence and control as a way to generate wealth. I've made a lot of angel investments. How many have you done? Over 100. So how much have you put in, you think, in your angel investments? So I screwed up and I had very small investments originally, and then I ramped up. I should have just kept check size the same, right? Because the problem is I now have later investments made at different periods of time with higher check size numbers. So even if these pay off, they won't equal these necessarily, right? Depends if they have exits or not, don't Yeah, but in the first five years, I made $10,000 investments. In the subsequent five years, I made $50,000 investments. These, even if they pay off at 10X, 20X, uh, 30X, I've screwed myself. Well, so how much have you, I, I want to talk about uh, that. So total, how much have I done? Yeah. 
Now, probably about a million bucks. How long have you been doing that? Maybe 12 years. 12-ish. And then how much have you gotten back? Zero. How much is on paper is different, right? Because I made early investments in companies that we all use today. Intercom, right? Like super early investment, but again, small check size. So I think that was a ten dollars or $15,000 investment. At their current valuation, how much is that worth? Is it worth like a mil? No, probably half. So it is like the power law with investing where like one or two will make your money back, but yeah. you actually haven't gotten shit for cash. No. Because I think that's one thing that was surprising me. I was looking at my net worth and I allocate 5% of my net worth for risky stuff. So crypto, I invested in a church. Uh, I started a religion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, it's a great way to avoid taxes. Uh, with all of these, I basically do it. Can I learn something? It basically, it's like my MBA. So can I learn something or can I meet someone? Yep. And if it's either of those two things, I generally will do it within the amount that I've allocated. But I've done three angel investments only. So I've done Teachable, Huckberry, and Buffer. And I think now investments have been around five years. And I think what I was surprised about these angel investments is I haven't got any money back. And the companies are all doing well. Buffer's doing great. Buffer's great. Teachable's great. Huckberry's great. I think when you see the articles on TechCrunch or TechMeme and the news, you're like, oh, angel investor put in some money and now is rich. It doesn't happen for 10 years. And I think most of us aren't patient enough and also don't realize that not all of them even win. All three of these could eventually maybe fold and I don't get any money back. But I think that's not really talked about. It's just like you put a money in. Now the guy who did the Google investment is worth billions. Yeah. I mean, I think the more current example is like Uber, right? There were a number of angel investors who made both a tremendous amount of money and their careers on that single investment. Lance Armstrong is public about it. There are a number of people in Silicon Valley who have made their entire career on that investment and have made significant amounts of money. That does not happen very often at best, right? Yeah. It happens even less than unicorns, right? Because Uber is in this weird scenario where there's been all these subsequent funding, the secondary private, markets, all these things, right? That happens even less than just getting to a billion dollars. So for people who have day jobs, like what does it mean to them? Like angel investing, you're not going to make a shit ton of money or like only one company every 10 years matters? I would stay away from all of the platforms where you can do crowdfunding for equity. That's for sure. Okay. Right? Like people email me all the time, like friends are like, oh, look at this company. It's great. I'm like, uh, like, first of all, absent of the metrics on the page, <laughs> just don't do it because you're going to put in $1,000. The amount you could ever make from it is what? $2,000? $3,000? Like what's going to happen? But my ego can't help it. I know. So last week I saw a site called chartable.com. It's a uh, podcast tracking. And so for podcasts, I'm like, this is so cool. If I ever see cool companies, I just hit them up to like connect. I think that's a great thing for anyone to do. Like if you find a company you like, just connect because like so many people I end up working with or hanging out with later. Turns out it's my buddy Dave, who I know from 10 years ago. And I was like, I need to invest in this company. I need to put money into it for no obvious reason than I just like the product. And then I just was trying to take a step back and like, well, what's the real point I'm trying to accomplish? And if from an investment, it's probably not the best use of my money. Yeah, probably not. But honestly, I think that filter of I love the product and I think it's a great product is a better filter than anything I've ever tried. Right. I've tried all sorts of filters like amount of revenue, stage of company, bootstrapped, not bootstrapped, general market space or whatever. But honestly, I think if I love the product, I think those are the far better investments. Yeah. The three products I've invested in, I used all of them. Right. And it's not just I know the founders. It's like I'm using this and so I can understand why it's so valuable. I think that's a great filter. What I wanted to talk about is that when you see someone who's so rich like you, you would think that you'd get a badge. <laughs> like, you know how Jews had starred David? Like, yeah. you'd think you'd have a dollar sign on your arm. <laughs> Your company sold publicly for 300 million? 200, just under. 
Just under 200 million? Oh, I thought you were rich. (laughs) (laughs) This is for rich people. (laughs) Well, I want to highlight. So David sold his company for 200 million. You had almost no investors? None. You had none? Zero. I would have invested, dude. (laughs) (laughs) We asked Mark at the time he made the Chargerfy investment, do you want to invest in Grasshopper? Because we needed some cash and it like timing wise, it made sense. And he's like, ah, you know, I don't like the phone market. I don't like where you guys are playing. And so we had a conversation during the exit period. And he's like, ah, man, I really wish I did that. How much would he have made, you think? Uh, millions. Okay. Did other people try to invest? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Along the way. I mean, VCs, people, you know, all sorts of stuff. We just said no to everyone. It's because you wanted it all for yourself. No, I, we wanted... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... Because you're greedy. Yeah. I think we wanted to control it all ourselves, right? Like we never expected to sell it. Like that was never our goal. So we wanted to be able to control and do things. So we saw people saying like, you should do voice over IP, right? We did not want to do voice over IP. We saw the writing on the wall that it's a commodity service. It's low margin, high problems, like not what we wanted to do. Our competitors all did that, right? Because they had venture capital money that pushed them in that direction and said, you got to go up market and you got to go enterprise. So we wanted to control decisions is what it came down to. So like we had deep conversations with VCs and right away they'd say, oh, you guys got to go up market. We're like, no, we're good. What I wanted to highlight is you sold a company for 200 million. There's three partners. Two. Just two? Yeah. So if you guys can do the math, 200 million divided by two. Yeah, I mean, look, we, <laughs> that's 100 mil, right? We carved out money to the management team and the team and totally. other things and stuff. But yeah, I mean, the math is relatively right. Okay, so if you can divide 200 million by two, David's made some money. Yeah. What I want to highlight is two key things. One, he doesn't get a sticker. Because I think what was cool in school, you got stickers. You're like, hey, you'd read this many books. You remember the book stuff? You'd read books. And in life, it doesn't really happen. I guess you do it with houses, maybe, or cars. But David drives the same car, 2010 Range Rover. I think as well. You come to the office. I'm like, David, you want the expensive LaCroix? You want the expensive LaCroix? No, David's drinking out of a red Solo cup, like from the faucet. <laughs> and as long as I've known you, as we've gotten closer, you've stayed frugal. Yeah. Has anything money-wise changed for you? I'd say the biggest thing is I've made far more investment mistakes that I never would have made before. I've lost more money in investments because I'm like, well, a $25,000 check, although that would have been like massive before, it's not small, it's meaningful, right? But it's not, oh my God, that's a quarter of what I'm gonna make this year. So I've lost more money. (laughs) I've always lived in the house I wanted to live in. Like, it's not a massive house, but it's not a cheap house. It's a million dollar plus house. But I lived in the same type of house in Massachusetts before I sold the company because I had a mortgage. And so the difference is now I don't have a mortgage. So maybe I'm at more risk because I've invested cash in this asset compared to having a mortgage. I think for a lot of people, including myself at times where I think once I get a certain amount of money, then my life will be better. I'll have freedom. That's actually a huge word I was shocked about. People want to have these side jobs or main businesses so they can have freedom. I think there's less freedom with more money. That's interesting. Or definitely less happiness. So for me, happiness was always derived from like the company, being engaged with people, doing something I love doing. Our core purpose of empowering entrepreneurs to succeed. We had hundreds of thousands of customers that I could talk to all the time. Like that was fun and engaging and I got joy from that, right? Now I don't have that. Yeah, That's difficult. And when I combine that with this frugality problem I have, (laughs) I hate the idea of spending more money than's coming in. Even if I have enough money to afford it, right? Just the idea that there is more money going out than coming in on a monthly or yearly basis or whatever period, it literally drives me nuts. So I think a lot of people might be thinking, well, just give us some of that money (laughs) and you'll be happier. They'll be happy, you'll be happier because then you'll have to make some more back. 
The second thing I want to highlight, it's a counterintuitive thing I've noticed from a few friends who are worth over eight figures, is that you guys are still concerned with your monthly cash flow. It's boggling to most people, which is most people have a job and they have income. You have all the money available, but you're still not making money per month. So you're like, I don't have the money. Yeah. That mindset is just wild. Yeah. I don't know. Like I struggle with it because people are like, that's stupid. What are you talking about? You don't want to buy this or you don't want to do this or whatever. It's a psychological problem, I guess. Do you regret selling the company now because you feel like you've lost some of the purpose in life? That's a good question. I don't regret it. I think we sold it at the right time for a significant amount of money that others would not have paid at the time. So we de-risked our total like life scenario, right? To have more liquid assets than non-liquid assets. So I don't regret that. I regret not being more involved in something ahead of time to fill that gap. I felt that way because with Sumo, for the past years, I've kind of stepped out and worked on the podcast, worked on a book, like this rich people book that I'm putting out, worked on different things, but I never really felt fulfilled. Yeah. I didn't have Sundays where I woke up for Mondays and I'm like, ah, there's so much cool stuff to work on. And I think a lot of people may not even realize that. Yeah. Because if you get all this money, you still live. It doesn't like life stops. I think what changes though is the people's assumption of how happy you should be or the things you should be doing changes pretty significantly. It's everyone else's expectation of you. Yeah, right? So their expectation of like, you should have bought a fancy car, you should have done this. There's a lot of expectations that are carried with life-changing wealth. When you go from one A and you go to Z, right? There's a lot of expectations there. If we went out to lunch, would I have to pay? Oh, well, I mean, it, it depends. The, 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 the question is how expensive is lunch? <laughs> if we're going to the taco, I mean, you know we're going to have tacos. So coming back for people that are listening that haven't maybe had the big exit yet, what do you encourage them to do? Is it find a job where you're getting paid enough that you're also going to do work you like? Is it start your own business? What is it that you would recommend? I mean, it's a difficult question. I think if you want to generate wealth, the only way to really do that a quick way is to build your own business. Like if you look at how to generate wealth over a long period of time, you can do it with other methods, investing in public markets or whatever. You can do all sorts of other things over long periods of time. If you want to generate wealth in a short period of time, I have never seen anything other than owning your own business and maybe active real estate. I don't know anything else. Interesting. Now that you're out of it, I guess your recommendation for the early retirement, which you don't want, and you want to find fulfillment is just something probably you would have started sooner thinking about. I would have started sooner like having a diversified portfolio of things to do that I loved in the same way as I loved Grasshopper. But it's a challenge because we launched Chargerify at the Grasshopper time and it was a tremendous distraction and I wouldn't recommend doing that. So like, I don't know how to balance that. Maybe it would have been better if I stayed at Grasshopper for a year and dealt with the challenges of working in a big company or something. I don't know. Yeah. But we left right away. Sold. Goodbye. Don't most people get the golden handcuffs? Yeah. How'd you guys get out of that? We had a great management team that ran the company. So that's a good lesson. Yeah. I mean, maybe in terms of people who are starting businesses and running through their businesses to be able to exit, even if they don't exit, I think that creates a great company. What are the things that you put in place in your business so that you could have an exit that was so smooth as well? Yeah. So I think the reason that we got a great return through multiple for the company and all this stuff and didn't have to stay was because we built an amazing company that was profitable, was well-run, efficient, all the things that you would do if you're building a business for the long-term because we never had the idea of selling. We didn't say like, well, we should do this for selling, but we did have budgets in place and roll down budgets to different departments and all the things that you'd expect to see in a larger size company because it was far more efficient to do. We had 42 people. When you divide that out and look at the revenue per employee, good numbers are 200,000. We're doing 500,000 to a million dollars per employee because of efficiency. Acquirers love that, but 
in the interim when there's no acquirer. That's great for us. High profit, high margin. But maybe what are some of the elements of anyone out there who has a business or is starting a business that you're like, hey, here are things, whether you get acquired or not, made it so great for us. It sounds like number one is that you hired, were they all senior people or did you groom them? Yeah, management team for sure. So when we sold Grasshopper, I was down to working between five and 10, maybe 15 hours a week on the company because the management team was running the business, right? So providing like high level strategy and things like that, being involved in daily and weekly meetings, and then some bigger kind of quarterly questions, right? But yeah, management team for sure, major impact to the company and to the sale. And it was a combination of people. So some were groomed, some we got really lucky in under hiring the person that was overqualified hiring someone that was like C-level and because of the job market at the time started as director level. So our COO, when we sold, he was hired as a director of operations and brought up within the company. Yeah. Others we went out and sourced. So someone like our VP of technology, that was a very specific job and title that I think is hard to groom for. The ability to manage a diverse group of engineers is something I would prefer someone have learned on someone else's dollar because it's tremendously difficult. So management team, internal process and daily meetings, weekly meetings, huddles, all of those things, tremendously impactful to the business. It allowed us to be able to step out. It allowed us to hire the right people. I mean, really simple, right? Like we're talking like two minute daily meetings, like super simple. Budgets, I think had an impact, but that was more on a spending side. Cause like I was the person who would go through like the books eh, once a quarter, maybe once every six months and look at like every line item on the credit card and be like, why do we have seven subscriptions to the same thing? And I do that every week. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy how much stuff just, just disappears, right? Like we had like eight subscriptions to Basecamp. I'm like, can't we just get one? How would you deal with your identity? Because I think that's something that companies like me with Sumo, I feel very associated and attached to this brand. And if that's gone, I wonder if you feel like, who is David? Yeah, I struggled with that for a while. I was the guy that was the grasshopper guy at conferences, at both in industry and out, even in kind of friends and family. They're like, oh, it was grasshopper. So that was my clear identity. Like he does something named grasshopper and it's something with technology. It makes money, grandma. Don't <laughs> you know, you're like an artist who had a great hit in the 80s. Like it's 2010. You're like, oh, you remember that hit I had in the 80s and I'm still living <laughs> off the royalties. And so I wonder how you're processing that and also like how you're associating who you want to be now and, and moving. I mean, I have to put that in emails. Like if I'm cold emailing someone because my domain name is no longer Grasshopper on the email, right? I got to put in there, oh, Grasshopper, you know, some sort of success metric or something, right? Because otherwise it's just David. I think I just came to the realization or the acceptance of just being like, you know what? I'm not going to change that. I'm going to use it to my advantage as much as possible and that cold email, right? I'll reference it anytime I want. I don't really care if it was in the 80s and now we're 30 years later. And I think that's what most people do. Someone who is a one-hit wonder, right? They reference it all the time. I get it. I mean, it gets them in the door. What are some other things that you've started doing, I think in preparing to sell your company is one that maybe you can share about other strategies or tactics that you think most regular people don't talk about? Yeah, so there's definitely a bunch of stuff and we can talk about in preparing to sell the company that you do from a tax perspective and a long-term planning perspective that I think most people don't think about and don't need to think about. One, we talked about this before, right? Paying taxes with your credit card. Great hack with American Express if you want a ton of miles, right? As long as you understand the cost of doing it, right? There's a fee for doing it. It's about 2.9% with the companies and you get a ton of miles. You know, huge tax bill after the sale, after doing all sorts of optimization as much as possible, and then just pay it with a credit card. And we had to prepay American Express before they would accept the charges. Interesting. And 
all sorts of stuff. So I think it's pay1040.com. Yeah, I think there's three companies, but the cheapest is them and they do it great. And we have millions of points and anyone can do that, right? Like if you have a small tax bill, that adds up really quick. And having 100, 150,000 points is an international first-class ticket if you plan right. So I think that's great. I've always been pretty intense on budgeting, like personal budgeting. Honestly, I think that got more intense after the sale. Monitoring money in and money out. I did more of the looking at line items like I did in the company personally after the sale. Oh my God, like why am I paying $180 for cable television? That's not necessary. Let me get rid of that, right? It's marginal dollars, but A, just calling them up and saying, I've been paying you for 20 years, give me a discount, most of the time works. And if it doesn't, then I just reduce the services to something that is more meaningful. The only thing I'm willing to pay for is internet. Do you think people would think like, he's so frugal, like, uh, you have the money, why just not worry about it? Yeah, I mean, look, people in my life complain about it. My girlfriend probably complains about it. And I get it, but it's part of who I am. So it's not going to change. You know, some of the things related to finances is one, you have a kind of a CFO, I was realizing. So you use a wealth management firm. You have someone that's thinking about your money every month. Yeah. I guess part of me would think, I love that idea because I think conceptually everyone has a bookkeeper and accountant for their business, but they're like, your personal? Oh no, I'll just figure it out myself. I think that's a great mental idea. I guess part of me also wondered with you sometimes, like, why don't you do it yourself? Because you seem so interested in it. Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in it. So I'm probably deeper into it than most people. But the most important thing for me having someone else doing those things is I don't want to think about public markets or stocks or up and down or any of those things. So if I can disengage from that as much as possible, I think that's a positive. And I think most people should do that, right? Like there is no reason to be heavily emotionally tied to any amount of money that you don't control. And if you put it into the public market, you should be thinking over the long term. No matter, we can discuss what I believe is the right way to do it in the public market. I'm pretty opinionated on that. We've talked about it. But no matter how you put money into the public markets, I think it should be over the long term and not worry about these ups and downs over time and have these emotional swings that are just crazy. Well, I think let's go into the where your net worth is. It's maybe something so people can get an idea of where mm. the super rich put their money. So for me, it's 70% in public equities, in index funds only. So no direct ownership, a mix of international, US and you know whatever else, right? There's some bonds in there. It's a portfolio mix of about 80-20 within that 70%. And I expect to never touch that, ever. That should be money that is available to my kids and my kids' kids, things like that. And I can talk about my belief about how little they should get. And it should be very little, but that should be there for them and then for charity and good work in the future. Outside of that, the remaining 30% is what I call like high risk. Like if I were to lose all of it, it has no marginal impact on my life. So I'm willing to make investments in private companies. I'm willing to buy access, right? If that means via an investment or something that I know will lose money. I'm willing to take high risk things like maybe, you know, commercial real estate or something I've never done before stuff like that. And once that money is gone, either I need to have generated more to refill that or it's just gone, right? So to me, that was the stopgap of like, don't lose your money in essence, right? Like people are like, oh my God, the stories are crazy, right? You get a million dollars and you somehow lose a million and a half. I didn't want to do that. The two pieces of that, is your daily spending out of the 30%? Yes. So two things that are interesting about that, David's in a finance group and I recommend this in the book, richpeoplebook.com is that get a group of people who are your peers or above you in wealth and that you could talk about these different things so it's not just you listen to them on things. You can actually have access, not even access, but availability to talk to friends about these topics. 
And in this group, I'm posting, Nick's posting, buy Tesla stock, Tesla stock's hot. And then it's like, oh, this company's hot. You got to buy this stock. And what's been fascinating, I'm like, Dave, you buying stock, you getting the stock that everyone else is getting. He's like, I just do index funds. And I think that level of discipline and that level of consistency is probably what's helped you get to where you are because you're saying, this is my strategy. I buy index funds, 70%. I don't fuck with anything else. And you know, I think you use Betterment. Yeah. Yeah. So I started using Betterment because you, and I just have like auto deposits and just let that focus on that stuff. Yeah. I think part of it's discipline, but the other is it's removing me emotionally from it. I don't have to be engaged with it at all. Like I don't even log into Betterment because it has the same ups and downs as the market, right? The only thing I care about with Betterment is my tax loss harvesting because now that's saving me dollars today. Like that is literally on my tax return deduction. Other than that, I don't even log in. And then so in the 30%, you've also said recently to me, you don't do any more commercial real estate. Yeah. And I think that's kind of counter. I think people historically are like, buy real estate, that's a great investment. Maybe can you share why you don't do that anymore? Yeah, we did a commercial real estate project in Las Vegas and actually did very well in terms of a dollar to dollar return. It took us about a year and a half, two years. And the return was great. I did not have fun doing it, one. So it was just tedious, annoying. It wasn't fun. I felt like there was a tremendous amount of market risk, just like timing. If I was off by another six months, maybe the market had crashed. It seemed like a tremendous amount of things I couldn't control, where if I invested that same amount of money in a private company that I can control and make decisions on, I would have been far happier losing all of it because it was my decisions. Not, I just missed the market timing on a specific market where I put a piece of property and built it a certain way. So that's why. I mean, look, there's great returns there. There's no disputing it. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are real estate and specifically commercial real estate. But you're saying the only way you'd want to do commercial real estate is if you controlled the tenant being yourself or someone you knew. Yeah. Or if I found fun in it, like if I had found enjoyment in developing it, I would have been more engaged, but it was not fun at all. But yeah, like if I can control the tenant, I definitely want to own the underlying asset. I'm going to pay a lease anyway for a large office space. I'll buy the whole building and control most of the tenant, even if I have some other tenants to fill spaces. And you said you've bought access. Is there anything you... Yeah. I mean, so I think that certain investments, the founder is either someone I want to be closer to, or that founder is close to people I want to be close to. So maybe I don't love the business, but I'll write a check because I know that that puts me up a rung in terms of sending an email and saying, I want to talk to this person or I want to do whatever. Right. So again, that's not a dollar a dollar return, but there is a return there. I think it's a mindset of some people who have day jobs or who never think of creating things. Most of the stuff that you're doing or some of the things you're doing, it sounds like it's like, oh, he's spending money or it's a cost and you're investing. And it really is a mindset shift where you're like, I'm going to meet this person or be able to work with them in the future. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's paying off. Like I start asking favors for a book I'm writing, right? Called? Called Evolve. Well, we might change the titles. I thought you were going to call it Optimize. Yeah. So now we're all screwed up. We might call it Unstoppable. Like well, that's not bad. There's a lot of up and down with that. But I can ask for favors for that, that probably are worth far more than the amount I invested in getting the access to those favors for blurbs, for promotion, for whatever it is. But that was a long payoff period. Yeah, it's not short term, which I think is something that you've been good at. Most importantly, like how much would you pay to be my friend? <laughs> if there was like a yearly fee for access to be a friend of mine, I'd say like 10 G's. Yeah, I mean, I think that's reasonable. We do a payment plan. Yeah. It depends uh, how many lunches you pay for. Yeah. <laughs> we have free lunches. Uh, so, no, and then, so the free lunch is sounding way better because now no one has to pay for it except your company has paid for it kind of marginally or whatever. But I think the food would taste better when it's free. That's debatable. Any shitty investment that you care to highlight? 
Shitty investment. Yeah, sure. So I invested in a restaurant in Las Vegas. What's it called? Bandito. Great food. I don't think the restaurant's going to make it or at least not be successful. It's still up in the air. That will be a tremendous loss in terms of just capital. Obviously not in the grand scheme of things, but like the possible return for it was so low. If it had done well, yeah. maybe I double my money, but I could lose a lot. So if you invest 100,000, maybe you get 200,000 out, or you lose the whole hundred. Interesting. In a short period of time. But again, this is a very emotional thing, right? I think we talked about this once, like saying I'm involved in a restaurant or I own a restaurant is people instantly understand what it is. They're like, oh, I eat food. I know what food is. I've been to restaurants. So then David <laughs> becomes the guy that is involved in a restaurant, right? Or anything related to food yeah. compared to some technology company that I don't understand. So it has a very strong emotional connection in that way. One thing I want to highlight with there is that expected value. So that what is the expected payoff versus what the expected risks? So I put in 25K in a bar locally in Austin. The upside at best is like a 5% return a year. The downside is in one year, it could all be gone. And someone said that to me after I put the money in, and I was like, this is why I'm not a good investor. <laughs> That's why. And guess how it's a year later now? It's not looking good. Yeah. But I got to say, I own a bar. <laughs> I'm a co-owner of a bar that's going to fail. I hope they succeed. I mean, look, I think food and bars are very interesting. Like, I look at it like this. Each meal I have there is a very expensive meal Ugh. because it's quote unquote free, right? Because I own it, but it's costing me a lot. Do you eat there every day? <laughs> I mean, even if, even if I did eat there every day, it'd still be very expensive, right? Yeah, I was thinking, just make it your private restaurant. Yeah. It would do better as a private restaurant, probably. All right. So finalizing some of the finance stuff, I want to talk about your Disney hack for okay. all the parents out there. What's the so, Disney hack? So the, the Disney hack, going to Disney World, not Disneyland in California, right? So Disney World in Florida. Okay. Getting a private tour guide is by far the best money you can ever spend, right? So now it's not a private tour guide. So there's two hacks. This is one. It's not the private tour guide from Disney. They're private companies. How they actually get the access, I have, don't really understand. But we had a private tour guide for three days. We did more in three days than we could have done in 10 weeks going to Disney. We went on every ride, never stood in line, went to shows that we would not have gone to. Tremendous benefit and spent some money doing it but tremendous value. Like everyone, including the kids are like, I would never go back without it. That's awesome. And people are like, ah, oh, you're cutting the line or whatever. I'm like, no, I'm taking advantage of the system that's in place. And it's plain and simple. The other one is Disneyland in California, which is go there for the special Halloween tickets where they kick everyone out of the park at 4 p.m. or 6 p.m., whatever time it is, unless you have this ticket. So you're allowed in a few hours early. You can go do whatever. They kick everyone out for Halloween trick-or-treating and ignore the trick-or-treating, which I mean, if you do it, you get bags of candy enormous, but there's 10,000 people in the park instead of 100,000 people in the park. So you go on every ride the whole night for the rest of the night without waiting in line. And the ticket is more expensive than a daily ticket. So it's like $130 instead of 115. And it's only part of the day, but you've done everything in that evening. I think part of being rich is like not just thinking, how do I spend the most money, but how do I get the most value out of the things I want? Which is like, hey, get a guide because that's super valuable for the time I get. How has that led to your prenup or not having a prenup? Yeah. So I was married once before I had a prenup. I felt pretty strongly about it. And, you know, I guess it's a good thing I did have it because I did get divorced. Right. So now my current girlfriend, we have kids together and we just decided not to get married, but we're committed in long-term relationships. So whatever that's called, we have a similar type of agreement, just it's not called a prenup, right? I think it's a difficult conversation for people. This idea of like pre-negotiating a breakup, but 
I think it's the right thing to do. And I would hope that if I was in a relationship with someone who had more resources than I, they would have that same conversation with me because I think it's the fair and the right thing to do. I would never expect that someone I'm in a relationship with that has supported me and done the things so I can be successful gets nothing. That's ridiculous. But getting half, I don't think is equitable, especially walking into a scenario where I've built a lot of wealth prior to that. Well, I was just thinking if we were going to be together, I would expect half. Okay? <laughs> I, would, I was really trying to be in the mindset of like, all right, David's the wealthy one. I'm the house husband, right? And yeah. then I'm like, all right, he's working hard, but I'm taking care of him while he's working hard. But I guess it's the stuff before me. I don't know if I really deserve. I'd like it. But then, so how do you guys negotiate it? And like, what do you recommend structurally to, to kind of- Someone asked me this recently, actually, a very specific scenario. And I'm like, look, first of all, it differs by state what you're allowed to do. There's all sorts of like very specific things that a lawyer that practices in the state you're dealing with, right? So like I've done it in Massachusetts and Nevada and Texas. So like I know some of those specifics. But in general, like in my mind, I think it is a fair scenario to say that over a period of time, there's some amount earned, right? Just like a job or anything else, for your spouse? Yeah, if it's a yearly, if it's every five years, whatever it is, to me, that's a fair setup where you say like, there is value in what you do. And it could be tremendous value. It could be a million dollars a year. I don't know what the number is for each person, but that is a negotiated value that says, here's what we're all contributing. If you break up, they get this amount per year that they've been together with you? Yeah. So I, do you give them bonuses? Like, hey, you stay 10. You get like a, you get yeah, a, and you get like a kicker bonus. Um, <laughs> look, there's a lot of structures, but to me, that seems a fair one. Or some sort of like guaranteed lump sum that says, look, if we're going to be together, you're guaranteed a house and a car and living a similar lifestyle. But living a similar lifestyle doesn't mean half. Like Jeff Bezos, half of his wealth is far more than anyone needs to live the same exact lifestyle he has today. So there are fair ways to do it. To me, I would prefer to just do literally yearly, right? Like this is a negotiated salary. You're contributing resources, assets, time into a relationship. I was thinking if you had performance bonuses for, your, <laughs> for like your kids going to better schools yeah. or doing well, in, like, hey, you want that commission. <laughs> Was there any points of contention? Yeah. Was there, there anything high level that you think, oh, wow, I was surprised that- I think the most difficult thing is having the initial conversation. Not that it went bad at any point, but it's a very hard thing to have the conversation, right? You're like, oh shit, what's going to happen? Like, this could go really bad. Maybe we break up because of having this conversation. I think there's a lot of emotional weight in just the first saying it. Outside of that, I don't think anything's gone bad. I think if anything, we talked about this a little bit the conversation opens up and does more good than bad in the long run. There's some emotion that goes into it and like, why are we talking about what happens if we break up and whatever? But that does not last as long as, okay, now I understand what your expectation is and my expectation. I understand what worth there is. I understand these things that we never discussed before. One thing that someone told me who got a prenup recently is that he's the wealthier one. He paid for her lawyer for the prenup. Yeah, you have to you have to have dual representation, right? Because it has to be fair. Which is kind of wild that I'm paying for my lawyer and their lawyer yeah. as part of the process. So that is it with the prenup. And then let's finish the kids thing. You have a very strong opinion about how much money your kids should get of your wealth. Because yeah. one thing that Steve Lockshin, who's one of your wealth managers at adviceperiod.com, he told me the saying, the three-shirt generation. Oh, yeah. This three-shirt generation, which is the first generation rolls up their sleeves, works hard, makes all the money. Second generation rolls down their sleeves, spends all of it. And the third generation has to roll it back up to yeah. make all the money again. So what is your belief and how have you structured it for your children? Yeah, I think Steve's had a tremendous impact on me and like saying like, here's what I've seen over a long period of time with lots of people with lots of money. 
So for me, the kids, the only thing they get is general health and maintenance, right? If there's any health problem, they have unlimited amount of money to address that, right? They get to go to the school of their choice or their parents' choice, like if it's my grandkids or whatever, both primary, high school, and college. Outside of that, they pretty much get nothing until they're 35. At 35, it's a very small fixed amount of money. I don't remember the exact dollars, but like we're talking an order of magnitude of like 25,000 bucks a year, relatively small. So in essence, like if I'm no longer around, it's grandpa David gave us a trip to wherever this year or allowed us to buy a car, whatever the thing is, but a present each year that is meaningful enough, but not life-changing in any shape. And it ticks up a little bit over time, but I've never understood giving kids a significant amount of money. I've, there has been no good that I've seen ever come from that. Just possible problems. Which I think is wild is that, and you said this to me, which really stuck with me, which was you're doing all this planning for when you die. Yeah. Do you have to plan multiple generations or how does that work? Does it like for the next forever until it goes away or how does it? Yeah, it's a generation skipping trusts. They last for my life plus 365 years, which is the Nevada statute. There's a few states that are the same. So it's technically a perpetual trust. There's ways to move it into other trusts later and do stuff. But I mean, this is how someone like Andrew Carnegie's kids have money today because it's been in these perpetual trusts over many generations. But yeah, I set out what I believe is the right thing to do. There are trustees. And when I'm gone a hundred years from now, they have to live by what I've said. They can't change it. It's very specific, but it carries down generationally, right? It's my descendants, descendants, descendants forever. I have a few friends that's like, yeah, my great grandpa started AT&T, right? That's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have your kids found out about you? No. How old are your kids? So our oldest is 14. We have a five-year-old and a one and a half-year-old. They haven't Googled. Do they know that you're wealthy? Yeah. I, I mean, look, they understand that we live in a different house than some people they know, right? My oldest daughter just spent six months in India living with my mom, going to school there. So she understands extreme poverty. Do I think they understand magnitude? No. But I had this conversation with someone the other day about like, when we fly like internationally, I use my points to fly first class. I will never pay for a first class ticket ever, period. There is no question about that. I'll use points for a first class ticket. So now there's this internal struggle that I battle with every time is I can either put the kids in coach or I can put them in first class with me. I never experienced first class until I had my own company where I was getting the points myself. Like my parents would never have done that even if they could afford it, right? So now what do I do? Like they experience first class and they think that's the way to fly. So, so what do you do? Well, I mean, what do you do with a five-year-old? You can't put them in coach by themselves. Or can you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean- Did you bring the five-year-old? <laughs> yeah. We take everyone. With but the 14-year-old? Because then now they're by themselves. They don't want to be alone. Yeah. Now you maybe take the grandparents and put the grandparents and the kids in Oh, coach. that's smart because you still save points that way. Yeah, see? But it's an <laughs> internal struggle, right? Like it sounds ridiculous, but like no. I don't want my kids to grow up to be spoiled brat kids and expect like this is the way we travel. But I also have worked really hard and have no desire to sit on a 12-hour flight in coach if I can use my points to lay down in a bed. Wrapping up the finance stuff, what have you done to set up your kids to let them know Yes, we might be wealthy, but here's how we live. Mm. And then do you have any other funny frugality stuff that you do? <laughs> One, we have conversations with the kids, like very directly. The things you have and the way that we live is not normal for a lot of people. So respect that and understand that. I think that's the most important thing is having a direct conversation. Two, I am a big believer in not spoiling the kids. So I'll pay for experiences, not things. And this came significantly from my girlfriend, Dawn. She showed me this. Like, I understood this kind of inherently, but she like said it specifically. She's like, look, 
I don't care what you do or what you spend money on as long as we have enough money to go on vacation and take the kids where we want to take them and go out, do bowling or do whatever. And I kind of distilled that down into like experiences over things. That's what I want to teach the kids. I will spend a seemingly unlimited amount of money on traveling the world with them and showing them things and experiencing things and not buy them the garbage that they want at the store. How do you decide what to buy them then? Is your 14 probably at, do they have a new iPhone or the new phone? Uh, she has her mom's passed down phone. So <laughs> my weird frugality, I just got an iPhone XS. I previously had an iPhone 5 for the last whatever number of years the iPhone 5 has been around, including getting a free one from Apple because the battery was messed up. And long story, they ended up giving me a new phone. So that extended my life of my iPhone 5 even longer. What other things are you frugal on? Like irrationally, you think? Irrationally frugal on? Or just frugal. I think one, like household expenses unrelated to food. I grew up like making sure you turn off the light and like all those things. Like my kids are probably so annoyed with me saying that, that they've now started to do it. Maybe that's the way to do it. Probably there's better ways to do it, but turning off the light and like the temperature in the house. Like I grew up with like, if you didn't have a sweatshirt on, there was a problem <laughs> because it was not cold enough in the house. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that was like, the, that was the temperature gauge is like how many people had sweatshirts on. My parents lost their uh, gas at their home for a longer story. So my parents are showering at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> my brother lives next door. They could go to my brother's house, but they're like, ah, we don't want to bother him. They have some quirks as well. I thought about that, like the gym thing. If I lived alone without kids, for sure, I would shower at the gym and have hot water at the gym and stuff like that. Because like, A, I enjoy going to the gym every day and I shower and get ready at the gym every day. Before I came here today, I did that, right? Also, like, why have all that crap at home? The gym has shampoo and conditioner and everything, and like, it's all there. Yeah. I mean, you could literally live in an RV and go to the gym. I think over time, you get more money, but there's certain like fundamentals that you don't change, and that's probably what you're putting in your kids, which is great. Yeah. And there's just things in general that you irrationally can't can't value. Like, I can value buying the new phone generally if I think it's going to be better and faster, but like Tucker Max always is like, no, buy better ingredients, and I'm like, I don't care if it's organic. I don't think organic's all that important, honestly. But I will buy certain more expensive food items as long as it is closer to the original source. Meaning like, if it's more expensive for me to buy whole food, meaning like a whole apple compared to an applesauce, I'll buy the whole apple. I've never heard that before. Because to me, that's valuable. Much less than the organic or not organic, or was it grown special, grass-fed, whatever. Like, yeah. There's some marginal gain in those things. Do you pick up pennies off the ground? Ah. <laughs> No, I don't. You want to know why? Yeah. Because my other neuroses of germs, I have no desire to pick up the penny up. Okay. More for me. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I was just making sure. (laughs) Is there anything else finance-wise? So another one is gas in the car. I will pay attention very significantly to the price per gallon and pick the place, even if it's a little bit out of my way, kind of plan. Like today, I'm like, all right, there's 30 miles left in the car. I'm going to go to this gas station because it's eight cents cheaper a gallon. You know, so I tell my girlfriend, like, make sure you go to this gas station. It's not like 50 miles out of the way because that's ridiculous when you start to calculate it, but it's not on the way. But you just can't help yourself. I can't. It's just impossible. Do you think most people that have day jobs or starting businesses basically like run your own company, or if you're in a company and you like working there, like I'd like the people that work at Sumo to keep working here, if they <laughs> hopefully like it, it's my job to help them do that. Do you think most of it's like, put most of your money in index funds, don't be distracted with that, and then control what you can control? Yeah, if there is any liquid assets or wealth, I would put it in something that is not gonna be distracting, 
and is going to make a return. And the clear data is that index funds managed well in a low-cost scenario is the best way to do that in the long run. There is no data that says otherwise. Even if you were the best active stock picker, you are still not going to beat those metrics. But we want to. It's just like owning the bar in the restaurant. I know. And you hear about the guy who bought Tesla stock at $2 and now you know it's worth so much and whatever. And I used to do that. I remember a daily phone call. Someone said, this is way back like with Tesla. Like It was like $20. Low, right? So I'm like, all right, you know what? So I went and bought some Tesla stock. I mean, it made up a large portion of my IRA now that I ended up donating to donor advised fund. I did very well on that. So now there's this mental like, well, maybe I could do that again. I'm that good. Right? So I've had to fight that and say, no, I'm, you know, I'm not that good. Like, it's not possible. I think part of that is also just recognizing, like, what's your unique advantage? Mm. Like, where do you have some undeniable advantage? And it's like, stock picking, probably not, but creating companies, process, organization, budget, market, like, that's a stronghold. That's how I feel with, with Sumo World, which is like, let me just spend all my time here and everything else just try to minimize as a distraction. Which is why I stopped or slowed down angel investing, because I'm like, you know what, like, it's not that I want to control things, it's that I want to have control of where my money is, right? So if I'm going to invest in something and I don't have control over it, it's never going to be done right compared to what I think. How you want it to be, yeah. And maybe my right was totally wrong and the company would have failed, but that was my choice. And I'm much more okay with that than someone else's choice in terms of a company. How much money is in your wallet right now? Uh, hold on. Wow. There's a $100 bill in the middle, two credit cards, and an ID. Not much. I feel like, I wonder if most people just don't carry cash anymore. Yeah. I never have cash. The $100 in my wallet is like emergency, like the credit card machine stopped working at the gas station and, or I have to get barbecue and they only take cash. They only take cash here in Texas. Yeah. Cool. Rich people. <laughs> That's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, go check out David at Twitter, which is twitter.com slash DH. That's twitter.com slash DH. Next, tell a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go to Vegas and lose a lot of money together. Finally, let me know what you thought of this episode by leaving me a comment on Twitter. That's at Noah Kagan. I might feature your beautiful face in one of my next podcasts. And don't forget to email me richpeople at okdork.com with the subject line, I want it if you're interested in learning secret things that rich people do that they don't want to tell you. Final plug, special thanks to Jason at Podcast Tech, Podcast Tech, podcasttech.com. As always for making these podcasts sound so, so clean and fresh in your sexy eardrums. And thank you to the Dork team. Bye.